0: Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. I am going to emphasize the discussion, and we have a special guest, and now we get to the introduction to Jotan Sani a wonderful Indian doctor trained in India that I have had the good fortune to meet. Dr. Sani did her medical college at the, let's see, Himalayan Institute of Medical Sciences and then her residency at the Dr. D.Y. Pitil Medical College Hospital and Research Center. She also had a clinical research training certification. And she has a certification in what they call in Ireland, professional care for the older person, medical care for the older person, instead of geriatrics, which I think sounds much nicer. Welcome, Jotan, and thank you so much for agreeing to be on the program.
1: Hello, and thank you, Dr. Don, for having me today.
0: Well, I'm very pleased to have you. Uh, you currently work in uh, New York State as an in-house physician, right? Yes. And you've been in the United States how long? Uh, Now it's around 12 years. Around 12 years and you have not coincidentally a 12-year-old son. Yes. So this is an interesting midlife career shift. First of all, I guess, coming to the United States, leaving behind your obstetrics and gynecology practice, that was a big jump. And into Uh, motherhood, another big jump, and now you're not tired of jumping yet. You're jumping into applying for a family medicine residency. And for those of you who have not gotten the menu, I, uh, among a number of other wonderful doctors, our faculty, and we have put together a residency program which launches in July. and uh, It'll be out of Dominican Hospital and Watsonville Community Hospital, and also out of Salud para la gente, and the Santa Cruz Community Healthcare Center. So we're very excited about our new residency program, our brand new shiny uh, residency program. I'm getting to meet so many wonderful people, and this is the first one I've actually asked to come on the show because I thought you had just such a fascinating background. Thank you. It's uh, really, really difficult to change from being a doctor in, let's say, India to being doctor in the United States, would you tell us some of the challenges that you encountered in making this this flip? There must have been many of them. Certainly. Uh,
1: So I'll start with a brief uh, introduction of myself. Sure. So um, I was born and raised in a small town in the foothills of Himalayas, and I had a wonderful childhood growing up. With my parents, my two siblings, my beloved grandmother, and several pets. And for my med school, I was in the north part of India. And for my OBGYN residency, I went to the western part of India. And after completing my residency, I went back to my hometown and was uh, serving underserved population from the Himalayan belt. So, um, and after that, I started the next phase of my life when I married my husband who was working here in US. In the initial years, I didn't have a work visa and I spent my time raising my son who was born here. And then I got a dependent work visa and I started finding some jobs related to my field. And I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to teach medical assistants in a school in New York. I started also venturing out in the community and I started volunteering my time in a local hospital with the EMS and with the Red Cross. As I got another opportunity to have uh, some research, uh, I went to Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and started um, working in translational research in cardiovascular diseases in a pharmacogenomics lab. Can you clarify translational
0: research? So, translational
1: research is basically a basic science research which is translated into clinical practice. So, we study about some genes, some novel genes, and we see how they affect clinically in patients. So, that was a wonderful experience. And currently, uh, for the last, uh, for more than a year now, I have been working in nursing homes and rehabilitation centers in New York basically working with the geriatric population and uh, dealing with the subacute care
0: wow now that is a resume
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but also i think i really identify with your number one your willingness to challenge yourself and your interest in teaching and your commitment to reaching out to the underserved community really is an important value i also think that It's a very different world in India, and I'm very interested in learning more about that. We were talking briefly on Tuesday when you were job shadowing me in your in my office, and we talked a little bit about leprosy, which is something that most United States doctors have never seen, and you indicated that it's still a big problem in India. Let's talk about that a little bit. What is leprosy, and how does it affect the body?
1: So, leprosy is one of the communicable diseases we see in India. It's caused by bacteria, mycobacterium leprae. It is like, uh, we still see patients of leprosy in India. Now, the government is doing a lot. I would say that the cases are becoming less and less every day. And now, nowadays, uh, leprosy is even fully curable. But... I'm talking about the cases, uh, the previous cases, where people are still living with leprosy. I see uh, their hands and their feet, they are deformed. They have lost a part of their toes or their fingers. Previously, they were sent into separate places to stay because people were so scared that they will contact leprosy through them. Uh, so, these are some of the common problems like tuberculosis and leprosy in the developing countries. Uh, but a lot is being done now, and uh I would say that it no, people are no more at least scared of the diseases that uh they would try to be away from those people as they know that we we have treatments now
0: okay, first a leprosy question and then a question on about access so the treatment for leprosy is a drug called dapsone, and then that is that widely available, and do most people have access to health care? if uh, they have any disease or if they just have a communicable disease?
1: So this is a very good question indeed. So in India, we have access to all the drugs. So drugs are very cheap and they're easily accessible. And even medical care is very, very cheap. And uh, we have many government uh, programs through which people get access to medical care free of cost or at very, very uh, reasonable uh, rates. And uh, the medications are very cheap, and you don't even need a prescription to get these medications. They are most of the medications are over the counter, and you can just go and get the medications, even medications like antibiotics or even oral contraceptives. So, only medications you will not find. Over-the-counter would be the habit-forming medications, which will have a little bit of restriction.
0: Very good. This access to health care, that would include things like uh, obstetrical care and gynecological care. Uh, I guess it's fair to ask about abortions. We're having a, a great battle in this country. In fact, it's speaking to the issue of medical education, it's really a challenge to train people. Uh, in half of the country now, and that 's you know an interesting form of extinction of knowledge that i don 't think we 've been able to address in properly at this point, but uh, what about a pregnancy termination? What are the laws in India and how to and what about access
1: yeah, sure, so in India, uh, we have a population of one point four eight six billion people and
0: that's the largest population yes. in the world. Yes. You, you beat China. Go you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so our, our problems as a developing country and with high population are different from what we face in U.S. So uh, our, in our country, uh, we provide uh, abortion care to all women. And uh, it, it is basically most of the times free of cost or with very reasonable prices, as I said. It is accessible to everybody, uh, like you can find uh, medication, uh, like med- for medical termina- termination of pregnancy. If you go for medical treatment, it, it is available over the counter. And otherwise, you can go to any government institute or even if you have money to the private clinics or hospitals and uh, no questions are asked. Uh, It's it just depends upon the women. And if she wants to go for an abortion, she can easily avail any of the services. In our country, we we generally try to avoid abortions which are done at home Uh, because of the culture of the country. Unwed women um, are looked down upon if they become pregnant. Mm -hmm. So people try to do abortions at home just to avoid other people knowing about it, and this is why uh, our policy of the country is that no questions will be asked. Just come; they just want them to be safe. That's the biggest criteria.
0: Do most women have access to pregnancy tests? Uh, testing is that also very cheap in the in the pharmacies?
1: Yes, definitely. Uh, everything is accessible and cheap.
0: And I presume for contraception as well, you mentioned birth control pills, but uh, things like IUDs and you know, other forms of contraception, such as uh, the progesterone implants and such, all of that's widely available.
1: Uh, the most commonly used uh, contraceptive in India is oral contraceptives. Uh, and it is given free of cost by the social workers. It is given in the villages. They talk about it and they give them free samples and even free supplies for, for months so that women use it and uh, we uh, don't have unwanted children and uh, we can also work on the population of the country.
0: And you managed to do that as a 3% of your gross domestic product in contrast to, I think we're up to 18%, if I'm not mistaken. It It's inflating even fast. Well, inflation slowed down, but the, uh, the amount we spend on healthcare, or rather I should say the amount we waste... Is astonishing three percent, two point nine six percent. How do you do that? Do you well? First of all, you must have a lot of doctors. <laughs> I am thinking. No, we actually have a shortage of doctors. You do. Then you know how do you manage to spend so little?
1: I would say uh, this is basically we don't have uh, insurance, so uh, most of the people pay out of pocket, and affordability is the biggest factor. And uh, then many of the drugs are generic, and uh, they are produced in India. That ah. keeps the keeps the cost of uh, medications low.
0: And these companies that make the drugs; these are privately held companies.
1: Yes, mostly.
0: Are there any government price setting or is or subsidies to these companies? That they do
1: help? get subsidies.
0: Uh, so that ins- that helps incentivize them to keep yes, the prices low. Yes. Ah, okay. I just I love to see when, particularly a country with the challenges that India faces in terms of just the sheer volume of population, managing to provide healthcare to everyone. I think it's worth dwelling on how how, how impressive that is. What do you think are the biggest challenges that India faces as a a system? So uh,
1: some of the challenges India has if I point it out, the biggest challenge is population. So it's overpopulated. So whatever reforms are done, whatever we may do, the population is so much that we cannot cater to everybody. So the country is trying very hard about uh, educating people for us for us we in our country we don't force anything on others but we, we believe in educating people so they, like we tell them that if you have small number of children you, they will be more educated you can take care of your uh, family better uh, so this is one thing we do and other challenges are uh, our country is facing is uh, like smoking Uh, So there are many smokers in the country. Alcoholism is another uh, another problem in the country. And uh, I would say that people less rely on drugs, though all the drugs are over the counter mostly. But uh, we don't have problems of drug addiction that much. I would say another problem we have is pollution. Mm. That is a very big problem in our country with so many vehicles and no control and no proper uh, proper guidance on smokelessness, smokeless vehicles. And uh, we will find vehicles which are so, uh, like, uh, from many years old and no regulations. So we have to work on those.
0: Another thing you didn't mention, but it's been very much on my mind the last few years, is climate change. And, of course, India is a subtropical country, effectively, for most of it. I mean, you've got the Himalayas, so not all of it. (laughs) But it gets really hot. And what is happening with heat illness? Now, of course, you're somewhat adapted to that epigenetically. But I imagine it must be a big problem, particularly in the cities. I would say uh,
1: yes. uh, With all the pollution, Mm -hmm. uh, it is a problem. And uh, that's why the government is trying to uh, to make some policies. We are in like in Delhi, now they have this uh, this thing coming out that uh, I don't remember the exact here, but but uh, if the vehicle is older than that, you cannot drive it anymore mm-hmm. in the country. And heat, yes, all this uh, global warming is also affecting India and our temperatures soar high up in summers. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see people sometimes even dying due to heat. And animals on the road dying due to heat, and we all, all already have a shortage of clean drinking water. I
0: was going to ask about water supply. Yeah,
1: yeah. So all these things uh, are a problem for us presently, and we are trying to work on it.
0: There's been a lot of talk about the COP meeting, you know, for the climate, and how each country comes to this with like how can I possibly fix the pollution that my own country is generating and not torpedo my economy? And I imagine that's a, a real conundrum from India. I don't expect you'll have you know a, a political precease for me on that. I just wanted to make that comment. Let's turn our conversation to the process of medical, education in the United States, particularly if you are coming in in the middle of the movie, so to speak. So you're a physician, an MD, scads of clinical experience, and yet you come to this country and you don't have a work visa. And so you can't even get started. That seems very unfair and also sort of ill-advised on our part because we have a shortage of doctors so if someone wants to come here who's qualified I don't feel we should make it as difficult as we do but let's talk about those difficulties and you know walk us through your challenges that just to even get into my office you've had to confront.
1: Yeah definitely so I'll start from uh, being in India my career was uh, stabilized and um, i was practicing and i was happy with it but um i made this career move and it was intentional uh so uh, when i came here i knew that i would face some challenges uh but uh, i i would say the biggest challenge was to become a dependent from being financially independent and you know once you don't have the resources you cannot move forward And now here I was in a developed country where I need more money to go forward. But I was restricted with financial constraints and with no work visa. And moreover, I had a a new marriage. So I was adjusting with a new person in my life. And then over that, I had a baby. Uh, with no, with no support. Like ours w- was, was a nuclear family.
0: Mm-hmm. No, no grandmothers. No, yeah. none of that yeah. extended family th- that would have, you know, gathered around yeah. you and like brought you, brought you cookies and milk when you were tired and your feet uh-huh. hurt. None of that stuff. So, uh,
1: in India being so used to family support in every small and big decisions, and here I was making all my decisions myself. So I would say that for a particular period of time, I was not able to be in medical field, but the growth I had was tremendous. It was growth on a personal level, how to be independent, actually independent. That That is what I was learning here now. So I would say like uh, whatever challenges come your way, uh, even when you know them or you don't know them, but you grow from them. So that was a time when I had a different kind of environment and a different kind of growth. And I learned how to survive in a new country. Meanwhile, our challenges were like, I, once we went uh, out because, uh, to Singapore because my husband had a conference there. And our visa to come back to the country, U.S., was rejected. We had all of our belongings in U.S., and we didn't know what to do. We are not allowed to come back to US. Oh my God! <laughs> so we went back to India, and then my husband got a job in Singapore, and we stayed there for for around a year, and then we again came back to US. So it was a challenging time. My husband had multiple relocations, even in within the US, and he was trying to uh, settle. And so my career was taking a back seat with the child to take care and with the family responsibilities and nobody in the family to help. But as you go on and you don't give up, you find your way out.
0: And then the first step of coming out of that was to take these work positions that you found in research. And how did you get to be working as a doctor? You got a dependent visa, and I don't understand okay. the visas. I gather that means that you have a, a quote-unquote stable wage earn, earner with the right visa, and so finally they let you get a job too. Is that a, a, a good description of it, or is there more to it than that? So
1: it is like when I first arrived in U.S., it was on a spouse visa. Mm-hmm. So that's an H-4 dependent visa where you can live with your spouse in the country but cannot work. Uh, Later on, there was some revision on these uh, visas and they started allowing uh, the spouses of uh, H1 visa to work and to have a dependent work visa. So they were giving EADs to work. Mm -hmm. So I took uh, advantage of that visa. And uh, meanwhile, our um, green card application was there. But it takes a long time for people from India to uh actually get the green card or permanent residency. So we took around 11 years to get it.
0: Wow. Well, I run st- uh I do some immigration advocacy work and I had a fellow we were literally going to court and it was the judge was in the room with, you know, the uh st- the State the federal attorney who's going to say we, you know, this guy should be deported, and I'm ready with my <laughs> list of reasons why he shouldn't be deported and why it'll be a disaster for his family. And the uh, government, the government lawyer comes in and he he, you know, looks at his his computer and he says, "Oh, his visa just came through, so you know, <laughs> we don't have to do the trial, we don't have to do." And it's literally. Had been filed 21 years earlier, yeah, and it had taken 21 years to make its way through the system. And I just want to put in a word for folks: when you hear immigration reform, it doesn't necessarily mean excluding people, uh, but it does mean this is a this is a ridiculous process at this point. These delays are absurd, and uh, it's we're, we're leaving such good people in the wake of this, they go off and they find themselves a nice gig in Singapore when, uh, when we would rather have them here. (laughs) So I don't know the answer to how we fix that. But it definitely needs fixing. Let's talk. uh, I have many more questions for you. But I'm uh, looking at the clock and recognizing that we're Already at the half-hour mark, time is just flying, so thank you very much. It's a pleasure mine. Oh, well, see? It was, you're not nervous at all. It's just a conversation. <laughs> and we're going to pivot now to answering a couple of emails that came through this week. So let's go to our first email. This from Lisa in Santa Cruz. Subject, COVID and menstruation. Hi, Dr. Don. Love your show and try to listen as often as I as I can. Parenthetically, thank you, Lisa. I have a question regarding COVID and menstrual cycles. Currently on my first period since having COVID, as well as the COVID vaccine. I got the vaccine before I knew I already had COVID. So I was pretty ill for seven days or so, and then I had a lingering cough for several weeks. Anyway, this is the heaviest period I've had in a long time. And I was wondering if it could be related to COVID or the vaccine. And if so, does it usually go back to normal or is, is it going to continue to be really heavy? I'm already taking iron for my mild anemia and low ferritin and I'm really wiped out. Thanks for everything. Well, Lisa, to start off with answering this question, the first thing that a doctor would do would be to take a menstrual history and a pregnancy history. Find out if you've had pregnancies, how many, and also find out if your periods have ever been very heavy in your life. Depending on your answer to that, we might take things in one direction or another. And I'm going to start off with the no, doctor. My periods have been regular pretty much every 28 days. They lasted three days and one day was heavy and they didn't cramp and I was fine. So that would be the the sort of happy menstrual cycle to history. so Let's assume you had the happy menstrual cycle. So you got very sick. One of the things I've seen a lot of is three months after COVID, people's hair starts to thin. And there's a term for that. We've talked about it on the program before, telogen effluvium. And it's due to the disease, the illness, taking so much energy. It can also happen from lots of stress because stress also will trigger... A redirection of energy and, and a disruption of the circadian rhythm. Bottom line is the hair grows back, and reassurance is the only treatment you need to do. However, when we talk about a illness, a, particularly a severe infectious disease, that's likely to throw off the circadian rhythm of the menstrual cycle. And it's not unusual to have a disruption, maybe even skip a period or have a period earlier. Another possibility, and we don't know because you didn't tell us if you were using contraception, is that you might have become pregnant and had just a normal sort of pregnancy loss in first trimester pregnancy loss. Uh, your period, you didn't tell us whether it was late, and that would have been really useful information with regard to that question. But going along with will your your real question, which is, is this going to be going on forever? To my experience, I have not seen a lot of History of long-term shifts in the menstrual cycle after COVID in most people. In fact, I I haven't seen any patients with that, and I haven't read any anything discussing that. But I haven't also I haven't looked. Uh, I do not think it had anything to do with, with the vaccine, but being really sick for seven days could definitely throw things off. I would expect that your periods will go back to their previous pattern as far as needing iron for mild anemia, maybe you don't have the happy menstrual history. And in fact, you have heavy periods, and that's why you have the mild anemia and the low ferritin. So perhaps that's been a long-term challenge for you. And in that case, even more, I would double down on the COVID will probably make it worse for a while, but eventually you'll revert back to your, your standard thing. It would be lovely to know if you had fibroids or lots of breast tenderness with your periods, because then the functional doctor, functional medicine doctor, steps forward and says, "Well, maybe you have a COMT mutation that slows down your body's ability to get rid of estrogen." Another question that the functional medicine doctor would be asking, because we always ask about bowel movements, is, "How are your bowel movements? Uh, do you have irritable bowel syndrome? Do I need to have you been on a lot of antibiotics in the last few years? Because then I'm worried that your microbiome." may be adverse, and that you may be recycling your estrogen, and that's throwing off your periods. However, I'm going to climb back out of the weeds and ask Dr. Sani if she has any thoughts about this particular presentation and circumstance.
1: Sure. As Dr. Dawn mentioned, that uh, we don't have the full story, and uh, certain things are missing, like I don't know the age, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I'm just assuming that you're young uh, with a normal cycle, and are not pregnant. So if we rule out all these things, uh, getting COVID uh, can mess up with your cycle because it is one of the stressors. So the only thing for you to rule out is that you're not pregnant and you might not have an abortion which you never knew about. If those things can be ruled out, I think uh, your cycles will normalize by themselves with time because menstrual cycle is like we say, it's for 28 days. uh, But several factors play their part in um, in how long they are. So all these factors, but the good part is it most probably they will normalize by themselves. That I can say. And other thing I can think about is like hormonal issues. These are the real things which I come across
0: generally. Sometimes it's a coincidence, and if it persists, the longer it persists, the more we're going to think it was a coincidence, and you need to get a hormone workup. Yes. All right, let's go to our next email. This one from Carl in Gulala, California. And Carl writes, turmeric and liver disease. Hi, Dr. Don. I'm a longtime listener and fan. Discovered you more than 30 years ago when I lived in Santa Cruz. Uh, Yes, 1993. It was, in fact, 30 years ago that I started being on the radio. Uh, Carl has a quick question. Based on recommendations by you and a number of others, I've been taking 3,000 micrograms of turmeric per day, and it seems like it may be one of the things that's helping me stave off joint pain that I felt was coming on when I was younger. As I watched numerous friends having joint surgery this year, it seems like no small thing. I'm 72 By the way, as such, I was wondering whether this might be something to worry about. We've got a link to a PubMed. Ah, Liver injury associated with turmeric, a growing problem. Ten cases from the drug-induced liver injury network. Okay, so I'm going to just do an abstract on this. Turmeric is a commonly used herbal product that's been implicated in causing liver injury uh, the aim of this case series is to describe the clinical, histological, and HLA associations. Uh, and they looked at all educated cases. This is the U.S. Drug-Induced Liver Injury Network, 2004 to 2022. And they basically did genetic analysis with HLA sequencing. HLA, just to remind you, is also called tissue histocompatibility Markers and these are when you get a transplant or give a transplant. This is the stuff that has to match, or the immune system will immediately destroy the transplant. So HLA also is relevant for certain kinds of autoimmune diseases. Uh, there's one called hlb twenty-seven or B twenty-three. I think it's B twenty-seven. That one, you will get uh, ankylosing spondylitis if you have, you will have a much higher risk of that because your immune system, for some unknown reason, will attack your spine. So let's get on with the results. They found 10 cases of turmeric-associated liver injury in, let's see, what was that, 24, 18 years. So that's not a lot of cases of turmeric-associated liver injury, and it was hepatocellular in nine Uh, They showed acute hepatitis in four. They found damage to the gallbladder with eosinophils, which is interesting. Eosinophils are typically seen in uh, parasites, in parasitosis, and also in people with very severe food sensitivity. They'll develop eosinophils in their esophagus. So these people, what they found essentially was seven of that ten carried a particular HLA-B35, This was a very high allele frequency. So basically, if you happen to have a particular HLA program, you would be more at risk if you took high doses of turmeric. I will also offer that three of the products that people used contained piperine, black pepper. It's a soft association given the number of cases. However, even the percentage within that cases, uh, it's interesting A lot of turmeric gets used in India. It's, of course, a big part of the diet. And I typically have people use an extract, a curcumin extract, because I've done the calculation. And I go for 500 curcuminoids if I'm trying to treat joint pain. And to get that, you have to take two teaspoons of turmeric and about an eighth of a teaspoon of black pepper. And most Westerners will just not do that daily. <laughs> so I, I have people take the extracts. But because it's such a big part of the uh, cuisine, I want comments from my guest.
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, turmeric, known as haldi in India, it will be is found in every kitchen in India. So it's an Indian spice, and it it is used in all curries. All of our Indian curries are yellow in color, and that is due to turmeric. It's a home remedy also for us. You will hear many Indians that they take turmeric milk at night and sleep. It is considered as a natural antibiotic by us so as indians uh, we have various other uh, medicinal medical forms like we use home remedies and in that turmeric has a big big place so i would say that we have been using it for years and years before even the western world discovered it and we didn't even have any patent and it was in every household from generations to generations And people even use it for dressing and injury. So there are several uses, and I would say that it's the amount uh, of turmeric you're taking which is important, and you should be uh, conscientious about how much amount you're taking. For as far as we take it in powder form in our curries, it is absolutely safe, and we have been taking it for generations and generations.
0: I would think that, in a curry, and I, I've never done a curry from scratch, so. but I bet you have. Yeah. Uh, so if I were to make a curried fill-in-the-blank, and I was going to make four servings of it, let's say, how much turmeric would I be likely to get in one of those servings from the amount that you would use to make the curry?
1: So I would use almost about 3 of a teaspoon. Mm-hmm. for making a meal for four people. Okay.
0: So three quarters of a teaspoon is basically a, somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 milligrams of turmeric in, in that ballpark. We can say, I think, demonstrably that that much turmeric is it's safe. Uh, and And if you happen to have this HLA variation, maybe it's not as safe but uh, okay. you d- we don't know how much the people were taking and that's one of the th- one of the flaws of this study is they don't actually tell us what the dosing range was that's one of the reasons to use extracts is turmeric is not a molecule it's dozens or probably hundreds of molecules in- present in various amounts because it's coming from the root of a plant so galangal right yeah, yeah so so what that means is You could be reacting to any compound, including the curcumin, and with the extracts, believe me, there's such negative attitudes about natural medicines, and particularly extracts uh, in this country, that if they could find a problem with the extract of curcumin, I think I would have heard about it, because they're on the lookout for anything to criticize, because And those studies are all funded by drug companies who really don't want people using natural remedies that can't be patented or cheap and widely available.
1: Yeah. And I would say the dosage is very important. Uh, What dosage we will be using in a powder form will be different if you're using it in some different form, though both of them are coming from the root. So it's like to avoid toxicity, which is important.
0: Yes. Yes. So let's take a moment again, I'm reminding you, you're listening to Ask Dr. Dawn on K-Squid. The squid tonight is presenting an interview with a soon-to-be a uh, medical resident, I hope, at my program or at another program to bring all of this wonderful wisdom that she has to a community in the United States. We're very excited to welcome Jotan Sani. And as you can see, She's got an impressive fund of knowledge and a really good presence. So let's go back to, I'm going to ask you throw out a medical issue that I had saved up for the show and just tell a little story, little news you can use to the people. That's part of what I try to do every week. So we're going to talk about s- skin allergies and contact dermatitis, which is when you get a rash from something your skin has come in contact with. If you go into the doctor with a rash, they're going to ask you, how are you using any new bath or body products? Have you bought a new cosmetic? Have you bought a new lotion? Have you gotten your hair dye? Depending on where the rash is. Uh, we're also going to think, with, because it can look very much like a viral infection, uh, we may we may wonder if this could be related to a recent viral infection, particularly in children who often show up with rashes from viruses. But for the most part, we'll call it eczema. And there's atopic eczema that's caused uh, by sensitivity to something, and that often in children affects. Well, people in general, it affects the soft skin folds, so the inside of the elbows and the backs of the knees and the neck. And if you've ever had a child with eczema, those are the locations you'll see. Contact eczema, the type of uh, eczema that's related to contact with something in the environment, is usually contact dermatitis, but it is it looks just like eczema. Sometimes it can blister. Poison oak is a form of contact dermatitis. We see it a lot in this area. We are probably one of the poison oak capitals of California, as I have discovered to my dismay when I moved here 30 years ago. But that type of contact dermatitis is often misunderstood because it's so delayed. And the pattern doesn't really tell you. A contact dermatitis. People who have a, a nickel sensitivity, they'll get it on their earlobes from a cheap earring. They'll get it around their neck from a, a base metal necklace. Those are often clues. Sometimes people with men with nickel will get it from their belt buckle or the button on the metal button on their jeans when, especially if they have a tummy and the jean and the tummy hangs over the jeans. But, uh, those are really common, and we can usually figure those out. I saw two cases this week that I wanted to bring to people's attention. Uh, the first one was actually written up in a medical journal, and it was called Persistent Post-Herpetic Neuralgia and a Well-Demarcated Plaque. This was a person who had shingles in his left upper back, and he was treated with usual therapy, which also includes lidoderm patches. And I'm going to hand this over to Dr. Sani because she's going to immediately know what the punchline is of this story when she looks at that. But lidoderm patches are being widely used, and I want you to realize that they can cause a rash. And this poor guy's rash was basically written off as persistent jingles that it wasn't going away. It was not. It was actually a reaction to the lidoderm patches he was using, and it was kind of obvious. I think. Do you have a diagnosis, doctor?
1: So this is uh, this is shingles because it is uh, it is in a specific dermat dermatome. Mm-hmm. So if it's not on both sides of your body, but only on one side, and is basically in one specific area, and it is painful, it is generally shingles, which can reactivate. After, say, 50, 55 years. So what happens is uh, the virus is in our body and uh, we are vaccinated in our childhood. But this can resurface in elderly age. So the treatment there would not be lidogain patches because they're just taking care of um, of the pain. But we need an antiviral. And that is generally we, we need to give velocyclovir for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have seen patients like this in the nursing home and uh, this works wonderfully on them. And uh, regarding eczema, if we talk about eczema, Then eczema, I have seen that people generally from the Asian background, when they come in US, uh, especially the kids, they get a lot of eczema because our skin is not used to uh, temperate climate. Uh, we are used to subtropical. We have a lot of moisture in our... We have so so much of water droplets mm-hmm. uh, back home. Uh, so even my son, he had uh, severe eczema in both his cheeks. And the doctor we were visiting that time told us, if you take him back to India, this will all go away. And it actually happened. We happened to have a trip to India and it just went away. And uh, though we also have uh, cases of eczema in India... Basically, due to pollution, pollution is one of the biggest costs, and uh, uh, so people have asthma and COPD Mm -hmm. because of that. Yes, so that's
0: so. The other case I saw that was interesting first of all, I will point out that when you have broken skin and you apply any kind of drug, even if it's a prescribed drug, let's say you have. Uh, Neosporin would be a good example It's a triple antibiotic And it contains one called neomycin And if you apply that to broken skin There is a possibility that you will develop A secondary contact dermatitis To the drug And some drugs are more likely to do that than others. In the case of neosporin I have seen numerous cases Of people who came in with a, a wound That just wouldn't heal And the story is, well, I've been putting All this neosporin on it And I look at it and it's a little blistery and it's really red, kind of beefy red. And I'll say, let's switch you to Bacitracin and let's switch you to Vaseline, okay? The cut is healed. Let's switch you to Vaseline and don't use the Neosporin. And a week later, they're fine because they have been generating the rash by applying the Neosporin. So in the case of the patient I saw this week, he had a chronic wound. It's not about the Neosporin, though. He had been... Getting a, a, a alternative medicine treatment, not by me, thank God. But he was a dia- he's a diabetic, mm-hmm. and the person treating him had used a heat lamp on him. And the he- and because he is diabetic, he has poor sensation to temperature in his feet. And the heat lamp had actually burnt a hole in his calcaneus, his heel bone, and it was this it it was a blister the size of a tangerine he lost the full thickness of the skin. It was a severe full thickness burn. And that's not an area that's easy to graft. So it was decided that we would treat this at the wound clinic. They hemmed and hawed decided not to graft it. But what they ended up doing was putting something called a wound vac on it. And this is a vacuum device that seals around the edges. And you have a a, essentially a vacuum cleaner that's battery powered and you hook that up to your device and you suck on the wound. And what that does is it brings, it first of all gets rid of fluid that's exudating from the wound and that's bacteria food. That's lovely tasty stuff. So you want to get rid of it. But it also pulls blood into the wound. And as an acupuncturist who does cupping, I will tell you it also pulls chi into the wound. And so you get faster and better healing on these very difficult to heal wounds. People with diabetes, not only do they lose their sensation, they also clog up their capillaries. So they can't get the healing stuff into the wound as well, and the vacuum sort of sucks it in. He wore that for, I believe, two months, and his wound healed. But he developed a very strange rash. And initially, it was on one side of his leg, and then it was on the other side of the leg. I had him he, I had him show me it was only on one side. It looked very much like venous stasis dermatitis, which is slightly blistery or can be, but it, the other leg was fine and the pulses were equal and there was no edema, no swelling on that side. So it turned out that what he had was a contact dermatitis associated with the adhesive that they were using on the tubing to keep it stuck to his legs so it didn't flop around so i'm pretty convinced i'm telling this story prematurely because I just put him on a strong steroid, and this was a case the two of us saw in my office yes. on Tuesday. all i 'm saying is be alert for the fact that these are strong medicines, and adhesives are notorious when we estrogen patches first came out. A lot of women were would be allergic to one adhesive and not to another and not to another. They were all commercial and proprietary so I had lots of samples in my office and I could just give people a different sample and figure out whether there was an adhesive they would tolerate but I also really warned them if you get a little rash from a band-aid you want to get a different brand of band-aids and then keep rotating the the angle of the band-aid so you don't put it on the skin in the same direction because if you give that skin lots of doses of that thing that you're sort of slightly reacting to. There you go.
1: Yeah. Here again, I would like to share an example of the band-aid. Like people get shots in the arms and a band-aid is put on them. And sometimes it's not told to them. They just, repeat, just remove it after two, three hours. And they happen to keep it for a week. And then they have a contact dermatitis there. Mm-hmm.
0: So it's so common. Yeah, I think we have to be very careful in how we instruct people. Though I will say... Uh, there's a truism that if you tell them twice and you write it down, half of them will still forget <laughs> what you <laughs> what you said. I uh, I keep a copy of any advice I give so that when they tell me they forgot it, I can send them a, an image by email. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, that is one of the things. We've only got a few minutes left. So I, w- I would like to give you the floor because I, I know you prepared a lot of things that you would be willing to talk about, and we've barely scratched the surface. So I, I would like you to just tell us what uh, what you think we would find interesting. So that's a very wide... It <laughs> is, just wide open. But tell me about being a doctor in India.
1: Okay, so being a doctor in India is quite different from being a doctor in the U.S. Yeah, basically, uh, in India... Not everybody goes to a doctor for every ailment. They first try their home remedies. So it starts from home remedies. So you have a cough. Okay, just take some turmeric milk. Uh, Okay, so um, you have a sore throat or something. We have so many spices. We just put some spices and make a tea. We use green tea. These are known as our grandmother's recipes. And the person gets well. If not, there basically they just go to the pharmacy and uh, they just buy a cough syrup or, uh, or some antibiotic and take it and get well and it's the third stage that even then if it doesn't work then they go and see the provider so it's it's just walk ins most of the time for primary care they'll just go the patient will uh, the doctor will just see uh, examine so our treatments are basically mostly on the basis of history and examination we don't go for diagnostics so much because maybe it's too much of patient uh, load. So they give, uh, according to the symptoms and uh, examination, they give medications. Most of the time they, they work. And this is how, these are some of the differences, I would say.
0: Well, Jotan Sunny, I want to thank you so much. Unfortunately, uh, we've come to the end of an hour, a truly wonderful hour. I cannot thank you enough for your presence here and your willingness to speak with me and give us a little taste of exotic India with turmeric and some green tea in in there as well. So, thank you. This is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Thank you so much. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or Follow my tweets at, at @askdrdon. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.